Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And so now we all act like little mini tyrants. <laughs> and and what I mean, I mean, I yeah. do it a lot. It's like, and you say, wait, no. And so you try to interrupt. And I'm like, no, no, Rodney, wait till slide 37. I get to that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this pyramid. It's this relentless sort of death march to slide 37, um, cutting off all meaningful opportunities for co-creation along the way. And then there's always slide 38. Questions? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my back-to-back co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone from the closet. We are also joined today by Matthew Barzun, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.K. and Sweden. And Matthew also served as President Obama's national finance chair. And his new book is called The Power of Giving Away Power, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go, which is my favorite book title in years. Matthew, welcome to the show. Oh, well, uh, thank you both for having me. And thank you for the compliment about the title. I can get no credit uh, (laughs) because I I fought it at first. It's not what I wanted to call it, but the amazing publisher and editor prevailed upon me. Their wisdom. (laughs) I was uncomfortable using the word power twice in one title because it was Mm. a word in my life thus far. I have sort of gone out of my way to avoid using. Yeah, that makes sense. For well, reasons I mean, probably, yeah, Obvious, ironically enough, anyway, for reasons we might episode, get into. Yeah, I was going to say, ironically <laughs> enough, on today's episode, we're going to talk about what we can gain when we give away power. We're going to talk about power a lot. But before we unpack that, we check in at the beginning of every podcast. And so, Rodney, take it away. We do. We will. Today will be not the first exception ever <laughs> to this rule. So I will ask that we each answer the following question in turn, and that turn will go me, then Aaron, then Matthew last. And our checking question for today, apropos of a little chat we were having before we started recording, is what is your number one, and I do mean only one, favorite restaurant? <laughs> All right, you're first, you said, so you oh, better. God, that was so stupid of me. Okay. I know. If I really only have to pick one, it's and I've made I've not made you I have invited you and you have consented to going there. It's Lil Frankie's in the East mm. Village of New York City to eat spaghetti limon, ideally on a balmy night. Beautiful. There is nothing about that restaurant that I don't love, and I always want to go there. That's it. Number one. There are several fancy pantsy restaurants I could say, but it would be dishonest for me not to say Chipotle. 
Wow. I mean, on it's quantity my safe alone. Place. It's my safe place. <laughs> oh my God. It's, I could list the most, you know, Michelin star winning things you've ever been to. But if it was like, where are you going to go every day and just get your protein and get out? I'm going to say Chipotle. I know it's a, it's a party foul, but make no apologies, man. You oh, are you, loyal. You, Aaron, you have made many fans with my children, my <laughs> three teenagers. Um, so I, two of them are twins. Actually, they're not teenagers. They just turned 20. But so mm. as a parent of twins, I usually would push back to Rodney and say, don't make me pick a favorite because I've learned <laughs> that that's a dangerous thing to do, but I will. Jack Fry's in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. I have to know is, a little bit more yeah, since yeah, I haven't, I haven't been there. Well, there. It is, it's sort of the vibe is speakeasy and like pressed tin ceilings, a beautiful bar. Oh, yeah. Trump and grits, amazing mm. team, amazing front of the house, amazing chefs and team. And it is a block and a half from our house. So we can uh, walk there, but more importantly, walk home. Wow. That's, that that's, that's you know what I mean? Ideal. Yeah. We oh, do. yeah. We, this yes. is a family friendly show. So. <laughs> picking up on that. I'm not sure that it is actually, but <laughs> we're, we're picking up on your message. For being, for being a business podcast, we do get that explicit rating a lot. So, um, <laughs> okay. So today's topic is letting go of power. It's old ways and shapes and structures. And I guess I'd like to start by asking you about, of all things, the $1 bill. So how does the dollar bill, specifically the two symbols printed on its back, connect to our most entrenched and fossilized beliefs about power and leadership? Ooh. So it turns out Aristotle said, and a reader told me this, and I wish I'd known it in advance and I would have put it on like the front page of the book. Aristotle said, the soul never thinks without an image. Mm-hmm. The soul never thinks without an image. And it just so happens that the back of the dollar bill has these two really powerful images that come from our national logo that I think perfectly encapsulate these two rival mindsets about how we think about ourselves, the people around us, and the flow of power between and among us. And symbol number one which I think to everyone listening, we're all really not only familiar with, which is the pyramid, uh, we're also really good at mm-hmm. pyramid, which to me is sort of the world of the obvious forms are top-down hierarchy. But as we might get into later, it's also bottom-up, same shape, different direction. And it's the world of up and down, in, out, ranking, rating, sorting, sifting. And I contrast that in the book with the constellation. So if you picture the dollar bill, the back of our national logo is the pyramid. And the front of our logo has the eagle on it. It's on the front of your passport if, you, if you're if you American and you have a passport. Mm-hmm. And there's the eagle and the shield and the, they're clutching the olive branches and the arrows, right? And then the front of the logo is also where we have our famous national motto, which translated is from many one. Mm-hmm. And then right above that logo is this strange symbol that, at least for me anyway, I'd looked at a million times and never noticed, which mm-hmm. is what they called the radiant constellation, which is 13 originally asymmetrical stars with beams of light radiating behind it. And it's symbolized for the folks that created that logo. It's basically the symbol for interdependence. How can you be one and many? How can you stand out and be yourself and fit into something greater, more powerful, more useful than you ever could alone? Interesting. What we're talking about here are pyramids and constellations as visual concepts. What assumptions, mental assumptions, mental concepts are people carrying about 
power and organizations in, in both of those situations? Well, let, I always like to start with the pyramid. I mean, in the book sort of advocates for the fact that this pyramid, which does have a place, and we can talk about that, there's a time and place for sort of the patterns and habits of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it it's on the back of our national logo. I think it should be at the back burner of our lives. <laughs> we keep mm-hmm. putting it in the front. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's historical and other reasons I think we do that. But but let's start with the pyramid because it's the shape I think everyone listening to, we're all good at this. And there's like hierarchy in the sense of, oh, big government bureaucracy or big corporate bureaucracy. And, and it's sort of out of favor to sort of have bosses in the corner office barking down arbitrary orders, right? We all kind of mm-hmm. got the memo that that's not trendy. But I think it's it's kind of in each of us. And, and what I mean by that is the, the basic pattern of a hierarchy is that there's a head, there's a point, and there are divisions within it. That's just kind of the, the seed pattern of what makes a hierarchy. So we all get really good at saying, and picture like your first job you had, or, or if you've changed jobs, it's like, who's in charge? Or any mm-hmm. meeting you walk into, who's in charge? What's the point? Where do I fit in? And we get really good at asking that of ourselves and and of others. And that's really important in a hierarchy because that sort of lets it run like a well-oiled machine. And so we get really good at focus. We get really good at knowing who's up and who's down. And we get really good at chopping things up into their component parts. And then what I try to argue in the book is that when we keep repeating that, who's up, who's down, focus, 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 and chopping things up, we start to lose sight and lose awareness of other kinds of skills we have, which I call the constellation skills. And it kind of crowds those out. So pyramid thinking is all around us. It is like the air that we breathe in the schools that educate <laughs> us and the churches and the families and all of the structures that are visible and many that are invisible too. Mm. Um, so we know that we know that this is very present in our daily lives. Tell us the not so great ways that pyramids impact us. Yeah, I mean, I they're so well. Here's one. I mean, here's one that like it's weird, kind of at the beginning of this discussion to do it, but let's just go there. It, sure. There's this. Uh, I'm going to pick a fight with with Teddy Roosevelt, which is a dangerous thing to do because he's got that famous thing that that I will not repeat here in its entirety, although my uncle made me memorize it when I was 11 years old, which is that famous one, it's not the critic who counts. Mm-hmm. It's the man, or I would add the man or woman, who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood. Mm-hmm. So it's known as the in the arena speech. It has inspired, you know, Obama read it at John McCain's funeral, right? It's inspired Brene Brown's amazing work. LeBron James has it etched into his basketball shoes, right? So this is like... A lot of people, Nelson Mandela loved it. So it is beloved, and I get it. And these are all people I really respect. But that view of the world, the in the arena, gives us only two choices. And I think this is, Rodney, an answer to your question. That is a gladiatorial framework, right? Go into the arena. It is a gladiatorial arena. Fight it out, win or lose, at least you tried. And in that view of the world, there's only two choices. You are either in the arena to win or lose, or you are sitting it out and being a bystander. And so I get if, if those are the only two choices, okay, you know, <laughs> it, it's not great to be a bystander in life. But I think, and this is why I love your, your podcast, you know, in the beginning of the, when I first read about it, it's like, 
hey, chaos or bureaucracy, pick one. And what you two have said is, no, there's an alternative, alternatives to chaos or bureaucracy. And I guess I'm saying the same thing, which is instead of fighting it out or sitting it out, I think you could play it through. Mm-hmm. Work it out together, like like build <laughs> arenas. Way. How about how about build arenas? Right. So it's this idea of what do we build together? And and one thing I said that brought this to life: if you get ten people in a room or a Zoom room, you say, "What's the opposite of winning?" They all say, "Losing," and that's just a warm up. And then you say, "Well, what's the opposite of winning and losing?" And nine out of ten of us say, "Not playing, mm-hmm. uh, sitting it out, <laughs> not playing." Then and then here's the hopeful bit. One out of 10 of us will say playing or laughing or learning or being or all the things we value in life that you can't win or lose. And we all know that. It's like you can't win your career. You can't win parenting. You can't win a marriage, although if you try, you could lose one. And yet the pyramid over time makes us think if we're not winning and losing, we are doing absolutely nothing. We're sitting out life. Right. Yeah. That to me is not helpful. It's not true especially for what we're going through today. Absolutely. Okay, now I'm going to go on my tangent because, oh, it's so related. I was working with a client for a long time. And part of the work is this very explicit, you know, we're coaching and installing new practices that are to be routines that are continuous. And then part of it is a little more amorphous where we're seeding a community of practice just of people who are interested in learning and practicing new ways of working and potentially taking them back to their teams. I tell you this brief introductory context because as Hmm. we were wrapping up, the community of practice said to us, well, now who's in charge of the community of practice? Mm. And we were like, well, you are. And they were like, well, no, you are. And we and we said, well, no, we haven't been, we never were in charge to begin with. We just invited you and now you've all been here for a year. And, and then very quickly it was like, well, we need an executive sponsor. And I said, well, f- for what? Do you, you know, do you need money? Do you need space? Do you need, what? what's missing? I was like, well, to, to protect this from existing. And I use this as an example because in this very binary thinking, it's like it's either a leader's or it's yours or it's someone else's or it doesn't exist. And it's like there are a lot of moments where you don't need a pyramid at all and where there's an assumption that there is a power holder at work that there isn't even. Like we are so socialized to this notion that even where the man behind the curtain doesn't exist at all. We assume that they do and are looking for that. <laughs> right. Where's the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. And I'm like, there's never been a wizard, y'all. Just keep coming to the meetings and doing the Back work. Back to Kansas. Exactly. Or Kentucky. Or Kentucky. Yeah. Or Kentucky. I mean, if we're gonna go if we're gonna go to the middle, I'm just gonna advocate <laughs> for Kentucky here. I mean, I know it it doesn't have the literary resonance, but no, th- that's a great story. I mean, I'm happy to take us in a in a slight tweaky direction. You were speaking earlier about kind of the the like-mindedness between between our show and, and your work. And it actually, you know, this is not in a way exclusively modern thinking. And in fact, in your book, there are a couple really important characters, almost like godfather, godmother of constellation thinking in Charles Thompson and, and Mary Parker Follett. Can you talk a little bit more about their ideologies and impact? Because I would imagine that a lot of folks have forgotten them. Totally. I'd love to. but And just in response to Rodney's point earlier, my as you were telling that story and the sort of like we need an executive sponsor, I, I think 
part of what's going on, and, and as I've been sort of on the virtual circuit talking about these ideas, I'll often get like, oh, is, is this servant leadership? And, and, and right. I'm not an expert on servant leadership. And I'm sort of like, yeah, I mean, all the good parts of servant leadership, sure. Although I think there's something sort of at, at the heart of your story, which is kind of this servant leadership is, I think, one of the downsides of it, if it's not really embraced, but if people just sort of grab it as a buzzword and try to put it into action, is kind of implicit in it is like, hey, you all have been serving me. Mm-hmm. Why don't we try something else? Flip the here? tables a bit. Yeah. Why don't we flip it and like, I'll try to like serve you for a little bit. And at the root, the pattern is a servitude pattern, which mm-hmm. is sort of like, and I know there's there's lots of good kinds of service in that word, but there's a lot of bad in that. And I think if it's like, hey, we'll put the shoe on the other foot for a while, you sort of aren't, you're just in that same trap. But Aaron, to your point, I mean, so the godmother is who I'd love to talk about. And Mary Parker Follett, and she's writing 100 years ago. And I think she is kind of mostly lost to history. And the, the way I think about it is when Harvard Business School about 18 years ago asked 200 top leadership gurus around the world, who was your guru? Number one, the guru's guru, number one on that list was Peter Drucker, who I think mm-hmm. many listeners will be familiar with. and and. I've certainly been inspired by his writing. But it turned out that he revealed at the end of his life that he had a guru the whole time. He's like, (laughs) she was the brightest star in the firmament. All the good leadership ideas we've ever had come from her, he says. But by the way, she doesn't even show up on the list, Mm -hmm. not even number 30 on the list, you know, in 2003. And yet she was the most sought after speaker. She kind of had the viral TED talk of her time 100 years ago. And she's writing at a time when America is coming out of a global pandemic, racial, economic, social division everywhere she looks, raging debates in Washington and elsewhere about the scary power of big business, equally raging debates about government overreach and trying to do something about big business. Sounds kind of familiar. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Right? And so, and and she's like, that all can be daunting. I get it. But there's actually something all of us can do at our next Monday morning meeting to deal with it. And she has so much to offer. But I think for sort of brave new work, it's like, she says, look, there's four possible outcomes of a meeting and only one of them is worthwhile. Bad outcome number one, you try to win the meeting. Like you come in with a fully hashed idea and try to get everyone to consent. She's like, why do you even have a meeting? (laughs) Two, right, is the opposite. It's just like, oh, Aaron seems fired up, Rod. Let them have their day. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, no, have their way. It's like, no, no, no. It's a meeting. Why are you there? You can't deny the group your unique perspective. Bad outcome number three is tricky, which is compromise, which I was certainly taught and we all probably were, that that is right. something to aim for. And she's like, no, right. no, no. At best, at best, compromise is just little mini victories and mini acquiescences. Maybe you leave that meeting with a subset of what you came in with, but never anything more than that. So the only reason, Follett says, we should ever gather around a virtual or a real table is to make something together mm. or co-create. Because if you make something together, and it could be something physical, you know, like make an arena, or it could be make a product roadmap or make a determination. It really doesn't matter. It's the act of making something with other people. You are forever part of that thing you made. It is forever part of you. 
And as I reflect on that teaching, we can, like beginning on Monday, so to speak, or Friday, tomorrow, three expectations we can bring. Expect to be needed, right? Bring your whole self. Uh Number two, expect to need others. That's why you're in a meeting. Uh And critically, and thirdly, which I think flows from the first, which is expect to be changed, meaning expect to leave that meeting just a little bit different than you entered it. And the reason you're changed is because you made something. And then when you bring your whole self to the next meeting, you're a little bit enhanced. You're a different you. And so we get out of this trap of bringing our same sort of stagnant self to every meeting. I love that. I think that's so smart and wise. And we have talked in moments on this show about needs. And one of the meeting structures that we teach, and we draw a lot of inspiration from Holacracy on this, but the the real killer app of the meeting is an agenda built collectively on the fly by participants. And the only prompt is, what do you need? And mm. and what can be populated into that agenda is I need to make an announcement. I need Aaron to sign off on that thing. I need a decision around this. I need to leave early. I, whatever. It's your need. Mm-hmm. If you would, because it sounds like you've pondered this quite a bit and, and this idea of human needs and interactions, how does that relate to the pyramid mindset? Because we find that getting people into the the action of articulating and understanding their own needs is like very critical to breaking out of old patterns. And so I'm just curious your take on needs and relations to hierarchies. Totally. Well, I'm in the middle of reading, kind of late to the game, Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication. Big fans here. Big fans. Well, which uh, like a huge guy I've learned a ton from, John Johnson, co-founder of BuzzFeed, turned me on to it just a few days ago. Nice. And I'd always sort of heard about it. I don't, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say. The title of it sort of ter- originally when I heard it, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It just felt sort of like peacemaking, which I'm not, that's hugely important. <laughs> I prefer a little you know what I mean? <laughs> no. Back to the gladiators. No, that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? I was like, it's, that it's a very it. dry title. Agreed. For what yeah. Yeah. Polarizing and, and what as, you, as you both know, cause you've read the whole thing and I've read, you know, half the thing. I'm like, wow, but this idea, when you said needs, I was like, yes, it's just so central to his way of thinking. So I'm just processing that. It is hugely relevant. I guess the thing that so often happens is, well, I don't, I don't write about this in the book because my wonderful editor who is younger and wiser than I am thought it was way too boring, although I don't think you guys will, which <laughs> is the, the, the perfect Symbolism. So when we were all not alive in sort of 1950s corporate America, they had the overhead slides and all that kind of stuff. And maybe in school, some of us still remember having the non-PowerPoint, but just the old school projector. There was a projector for sure. Yeah. yeah, there was a projector, right? And then it's like we democratized it in the form of PowerPoint. But what we democratized was the pyramid. And what we democratized yeah. was demagoguery. And now everyone, it used to be just the boss, could go pay whatever it costs to have overheads printed at the centralized word processing department of you know, General Electric or whatever. But now we all can do it. And so now we all act like little mini tyrants 
<laughs> and and what I mean, I mean, I yeah. do it a lot. It's like, and you said, wait, no. And so you try to interrupt. And I'm like, no, no, Rodney, wait till slide 37. I get to that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this pyramid. It's this relentless sort of death march to slide 37, um, cutting off all meaningful opportunities for co-creation along the way. And then there's always slide 38. Questions with a question mark. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, there's no energy left. Everyone's trying to organize their, you know, whatever dog grooming or whatever on their phones underneath the table. And that to me is the classic. This is what happens in the pyramid. There's like this forced March and then everyone's self-medicating with their phones underneath the table. And that is just such a, you know, terrible waste of energy. And so often it begins with this very rational and unhelpful assumption, which is like, let's state a goal and work our way backwards. Uh-huh. Right. And that's what happens in slide 37 is like the point they want to make. And then they're just going to work backwards and take us on their solitary logical journey. <laughs> take us to on it. your journey. Right. <laughs> and it's like, the, what a backward way to do that. I think you're being very generous with slide 37, by the way. I'm thinking like slide 117. Yes. No, exactly. It is too often a triple digit thing. And every once in a while, you know, I think Jim Mattis, the former secretary of defense said, you know, PowerPoint makes us stupid, try to outlaw it at the DOD, Department of Defense. You know what I mean? But it really does sort of kill energy. And so I think, yeah, and that is that is a version of sort of applied pyramid thinking. Yeah, well, and I the mean, contrast, when you want, I think oh, could sorry, start with your needs point. Yeah. yeah. Although, although I, I mean, I have not fleshed this out yet, but I was, I mean, when I was working in the State Department world at embassies, I would, it's a very different meeting culture than I had come from sort of dot com land. And then I'd done presidential politics and then sort of State Department. It was very different. And so many of the meetings there, I don't think we would have even had meetings in the dot-com thing, because it was only about disseminating information to other people. Mm-hmm. Like only, like you would just go around, there'd be like 38 people in the room and people would just say things at one another. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a weird use of time. <laughs> and then there'd be ones where you would, so that was, I tried to make them all begin with D. This was after like a year of just surviving these meetings. I was like, so they're dissemination meetings. Then there's like decision meetings. Mm-hmm. And I was, and what there was never was the third thing that I was so hungry for, which was like discuss things. Mm. But because it was very hierarchical and I was sort of the highest ranking person in these meetings as ambassador, and they would say, no, those are just deciding. Just tell us what you want to do and we'll do it. And I was like, no, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's the whole point. I want us to kind of talk through it. And it was really awkward at the beginning. I like brought in a whiteboard because there are never any whiteboards and I'd start drawing stuff and you could just see it was not working. And it's almost like, just tell it. I know you're, you know, you're just trying to have us feel listened to. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, no, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I think maybe we might together, you know. That's so it's funny because that, that reminds me of a, a guest we had on the show, David Marquette, who was the captain of the USS Santa Fe submarine in the Navy and basically came to the same conclusion, which is like, Hey, I I'm not really in a position to give orders because I didn't prepare for this particular ship. And so we're going to have to figure this out together. And, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, quite a jarring brief 
But then in the end, once they did optimize that different way of thinking about power on the ship, it, I mean, it did literally go from worst to first. And so it was a, it was kind of a neat story of that same kind of disruption. And where my mind went, I love how this conversation is such a fun and winding road. I'm like learning things <laughs> and having insights as we do it. Here's, here's where my brain went is if we go back to the servant leadership conversation, mm-hmm. it's like, maybe this is what bugs me about servant leadership, which I love to hate on, you know, without mm-hmm. really understanding it that deeply, to be honest, is like the traditional way is there is a pyramid. Someone at the top of it has a PowerPoint they dominate the room by getting their needs met and there's no room for what other people need. The opposing view of that is an inverted pyramid, which is what servant leadership proposes with a paternalistic flavor, which is you tell me what you need and I will get it for you. And to me, that is not interesting either because the third way is about participation where there's no fucking pyramid and I can just show up and say what I need. And then As an adult. somebody can give it to me or tell me that I can't have that. Well, yeah, there's this great, I mean, this amazing woman, Lynn Twist, who wrote The Soul of Money, came to Louisville, Kentucky, gave, and she told the story of how halfway through her career, she was doing big time fundraising to help world hunger. And then she had a, she felt this calling to go help deal with deforestation in the Amazon, which she now does incredibly, but she hadn't done that yet. And so she has a friend of a friend. She goes to visit this tribe at the headwaters of the Amazon who had up to this point sort of avoided contact with the outside world. And she sits down after a four-day track. She's exhausted and she kind of lays out, I mean, I call it a pitch. I don't think she would call it a pitch, but <laughs> sort of like, here I am, here's what I've learned. You know? And, uh, and the the chief, through a translator, listens respectfully, and then he says back to Lynn, I think I understand. If you're here to help, please leave. Ah. Uh. And she's defeated. I mean, she's just like, oh, you know, I screwed up. I blew it. But then he continued, and he said, but if you're here because you think your liberation is inexorably tied up with our liberation, then sit, stay, and let's see if we might work it out. Mm. Or work together. And mm-hmm. and when she told me that story, it really stuck because I think it gets mm-hmm. to the heart of what you're saying, which yeah. is like, we're usually given these two choices. You can be selfish. We're all, we all understand what that is. And we think, well, if there are limitations of self selfishness, which we all are aware of, I know the opposite must be selflessness, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it isn't. Yeah. You know, it really isn't. And the weird place that my mind's going as we're talking about all this, not in the book, but there's that famous, it's like the most quoted part of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, right? It is, in paraphrasing, it is not on the benevolence of the butcher or the baker or the brewer that you get your dinner. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, I got it. It's not them being like do-gooders, selfless makers of beer and bread. And so we've all, you know, with Adam Smith's help, interpreted that as it must just be everyone being really selfish and, yeah, it's Gordon hand Gecko. and everything. Yeah. Then everything works out. And it's like, well, what is going on between the butcher and the baker and the brewer and you, it is something and it is not rank selfishness. And it is certainly not benevolent selflessness. It is. And some people don't like this. It is just like interdependence, right? Exactly. It is mutual liberation. It is like, it's competition and cooperation. It's a lot of what life looks like. And somehow we keep factoring that out. 
I'm glad we've come to this point because what we keep tying back to are these different polarities where it's it's got to be winning or losing, it's got to be this or that. And and we keep coming back to the idea of the third way. What I think is underneath that is this mindset that you actually write about in the book that somehow the constellation is the alternative model, the pyramid is sort of the normal natural default and you're saying, "Well, no, it's actually the opposite. The the constellation is not a model at all." It's nature's playbook. So can you talk a little bit about about that mindset flip that has to be made to understand them differently? It is. The, the woman who inspired me, who's, who's, who didn't get enough pages in the book, because I, I was determined to keep this book the kind of short book that I would read. Those thick books that we're all given, you know, I get them and I'm just like, yeah, one day. But I they're have a great, very tall one-day pile. Yeah. <laughs> But I was like, you could read this in one plane ride, you know? But it's Jane Jacobs, who your listeners may know. She's sort of famous for the first book she wrote, which was The Death and Life of American Cities. And she's this amazing woman who stood up to Robert Moses, who the dude who was trying to destroy all of what is Soho and Greenwich Village. He was going to link up the West Side Highway with the FDR Drive, for those Mm -hmm. of you familiar with Manhattan. And, I mean, she's the first person to ever beat him. And she did. But at the end of her life, she wrote all these books. And they said, Ms. Jacobs, would you like to be remembered as the woman who stood up to Robert Moses and all the bulldozers? And because she did that her whole life, long after he was gone. And she said, oh, gosh, no. Heavens, no. I just did that because people kept trying to destroy life. But I'd like to be remembered. And I hope to be remembered for what I said about the patterns of life. The example she used was... Okay, did the Marshall Plan work in Italy after World War II? And she's like, the answer, if you ask people, is it worked fairly well. Uh And she said, and that's sort of technically true, but she's like, just one level deeper. It worked phenomenally well in Northern Italy and not at all in Southern Italy. Mm. And so on average, it worked fine. But you don't learn very interesting things from that average. And then she says, look, think about it like this. What? She thinks about a rainforest in Brazil, and then she kind of, this geographically might sort of work, go, you know, sort of due east and find like a desert in Namibia, right? And both places get identical amount of sunlight, but what they do with that sunlight is so dramatically different. In the rainforest, it gets recirculated and recombined and all this kind of co-creation, amazing recirculation of energy. But in the desert, it just gets, some gets absorbed as heat and the rest gets bounced back, right? And she's like, you can think of that as like Northern Italy as a rainforest of networks of people and da, 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 that if you put money and machines back in, boy, can you get a lot of growth. If you don't have, and there's no judgment, if you don't have that kind of network pre-existing yet, you can dump money and machines there and nothing particularly magical happens. So she was so alive to the patterns of other people saw chaos. Robert Moses called Soho and Greenwich Village a slum. She's like, this is not a slum. This is what life looks like. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so she saw the order in what other people saw as chaos. They came in with their gleaming, you know, giant public housing progress and giant government centers and these sort of white elephant buildings. They saw order and she saw death. Mm. Regenerative systems do not look like the Vogue corporate offices. They yeah. are messy. They're just messy. And 
That's right. And so the pyramid wants to be clean and the pyramid doesn't let any light in, by the way. Right. It's I mean, just to get really, you know, if you go there on the pyramid thing, it is like it is probably, you know, built by slaves for the eternal glory of somebody else. <laughs> of one person. Oh. Right. I mean, it's just very like, apt metaphor. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear more from us and our very esteemed guests, a review would mean so much to us. Please do it. Please don't procrastinate. We really, really appreciate it. Or forward our show to somebody who needs it. I feel like I just need to say out loud that I I really want a part two of this conversation because every answer that you have, Matthew, makes me want to talk about that thing for the rest of the podcast. But there are other things that we're, you know... (laughs) trying to get to so i'm trying to bring me up i I, this is so fun to talk to both of you who like have been thinking and talking and learning and writing about this stuff it's great awesome all right well well knowing that i can calm down and stay focused so there seems to be quite a bit of overlap between constellation thinking and how you approached your time as an ambassador you wrote Diplomats ought to live in the in-between. The task of a diplomat is to first learn how to become uncomfortable in that space and then to make others comfortable, to draw people out from behind their walls of entrenchment or entitlement and into engagement. That's what turns frustrating friction into fruitful friction. How did you reach that understanding through your experience and how did you sort of learn to walk that tightrope between bureaucracy and community? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was slow going and I learned a lot from watching President Obama and candidate Obama. And there was one moment where he came to little this is before he even announced he was running for president, but he came to our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, and he had done a big free sort of rally with we had five thousand people in a ballpark and it was amazing. And then He stayed the night and the next day he was going to meet Muhammad Ali, which was fun. But Muhammad Ali changed his schedule. So he had an extra hour. He, Obama, had an extra hour. And I figured he'd want to just catch up on his BlackBerry. But he said, hey, do you have any friends who didn't come to the rally last night? Republicans, independents, or the fundraiser we did? And I said, sure, yeah, many. So we hastily gathered a group of people to sit around the table. And uh, there were about 12 of us. And we had an hour and he went and asked people basically about their hopes for the country and their fears for where the country was. And he took notes. And at the end, he summed up and explained you know, why he'd wanted to be a senator and his vision for the country and how it overlapped with theirs. And, and then it was all over. And I was struck by two things because one of the people in that session came up to me afterwards and said, oh, my gosh, what an amazing speaker. And I thought, yeah, I agreed. I had seen him the (laughs) night before at the rally and he had given one of his famous, he is a really good public speaker, but he had barely said anything at Mm. this session. But the act of asking everyone to share their hopes and fears and actively listening to it, to use the buzzword, and then sort of playing it back and connecting it to his own was, that's how they felt. And then I think more interestingly, there was a, a woman who couldn't make it to the session, um, who called me after and said, what was it like? What was it, you know, what was it like? What was he like? Did he light mm. up the room? And that's, and I was like, well, yeah, the room got lit up, but it's not the way you think. And I won't name names, but we can think of big democratic or Republican presidents or political figures who light up the room. And what sure. we mean is they're kind of like the sun. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They walk mm-hmm. in and then their light bounces off of us and the room gets lit up. 
And Senator candidate Obama wasn't like that at all. He just got each of those people around the room to light their own light and flip on their own light. And that to me, and I didn't have the word consolation back then, but just watching that and then trying to serve as a diplomat. And I remember when I was on the campaign, I was asked to help co-teach these basically fundraisers. Like we'd get a hundred volunteer fundraisers from around the country and do a day long training workshop kind of thing. And then everyone would go home and try to, you know, raise more money. And, uh, and at every session we would say at the beginning of it, Hey, sort of to your needs point, we'd be like, Hey, what do you want to get out of today? You're all really busy people. You're taking eight hours. What do you want? And everyone would always say the exact same thing. They'd all be like, I want to leave here armed with talking points to go back to Boston or Austin or wherever. And like win the argument with my progressive friends on why they should support Obama and not John Edwards or Hillary or whoever. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to that enough. And then I was like, okay, quick show of hands. There'd be a hundred people. How many people here like to lose an argument? <laughs> <laughs> and like, no one ever raises their hand, you know? And it's like, well, so why do we spend so much time and energy trying to get, trying to think we're in the argument winning business? So I sort of, this is a little hokey, but here we are. So I tried to turn this into a little mantra when I became an ambassador, first in Sweden and then in the UK. And I'd be with these amazing foreign service officers, right, who had been all around the world. They're amazing. And I'd say to them, and they often were trained. I mean, the State Department is in the argument winning business. It thinks, right? Right. And so I, so I would write up on the whiteboard, like in all caps, the word also, A-L-S-O. And I would say, look, all of you guys and all of us, I mean, we're all, and I would say this to listeners here too, I bet we are good at, and it's going to spell the word also, we are good at arguing. Mm -hmm. We are good at, quote, you know, leading. We are good at strategizing and we are good at organizing, right? And that's all sort of, those are very pyramid words to me. And there is absolutely a time and place for all of them. And then I'd write underneath it the word also in all lowercase letters, A dot L dot S dot O. And I'd say, but in addition to that, if you want to, you can come with me and we're going to do this other thing because we are going to ask other people about their hopes and fears. You can see where this came from, from that day in Louisville. <laughs> we are going to listen. listen and link. This is two L's, but depending on the day, I'd be like, link it to our own. This is this mutual liberation idea. Not like final, do whatever you want, servant kind of thing. It's like, no, how does it link up with my own hopes and fears? Mm -hmm. And then S, I will serve that overlap. And in the whole, in this whole process, I will open up or to use Brene Brown, you know, be vulnerable, open up, admit you don't have the answer, start a meeting with, I don't know, all mm -hmm. that. So ask, link, serve, open up also was my little mantra to try to set the right pattern and tone for myself as much as for them. Totally. And, and those kinds of, you know, little mnemonics, I think actually help this stuff stick to the ribs. I, I am noticing hearing you tell the story that it seems like a lot of this awakening for you was intuitive and happened over time. But now as you're writing about it and speaking about it and hoping, I, I would imagine, to impart some of these ideas onto others, are there first moves? Are there you know ways to accelerate this process that for you happened organically? What do you think are, are, are the sort of Monday morning actions that folks could consider taking? I think maybe you 
too would be, I'd love to know what you both think, because you get so deep into this. Like I always forget. I mean, my tendency is sort of jump and start extolling the benefits of the constellation and all that. And I realize as I do, I mean, Zoom talks, you can figure it out, but I was in person for the first time in a while with other people. And you can really tell when yeah. someone in the front row is sitting there, arms folded, just not buying a word I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, polite, but just like, this is <laughs> yeah. so stupid. Not here for or, you know, like, and so those are the most fun people often to, to try to engage with. And so I had one the other day and after a little bit of coaxing and trying to maybe use needs language with this wonderful person who had done quite well in the pyramid. Thank you very much. And basically after a few questioning, I, I, I learned from him that, look, the pyramid does provide stability and order, but it's not the only kind of stability and order, but we often trick ourselves into thinking it is. And with a little digging, I sort of learned, I was like, okay, so if you, his sake was, if you leave the pyramid, you are either signing up for anarchy or communism. And and so if we stick with this constellation, it's like, okay, you're one of a million stars in the night sky. Let's call that anarchy. Or it's communism. Like we all form some giant collective star. And I, so then I was like, well, okay, so the constellation isn't that. It's not about crowds and collectivism. It's about distinct individuals as themselves. You have to be a distinct star to make a constellation interesting, right? It's, it's not a big group hug. It's just about connections between things. But I could see that I was kind of losing them. So I was like, okay, and might be losing some of your listeners. So maybe come on <laughs> this way. Come back. Because you can get kind of weird. Come on back. So I was like, okay. And I was like, two cars in an American parking lot. Could be, doesn't have to be American, but to make the story work, you have to guess which is the Democrat's car and which is the Republican's car. And I'm not going to make it easy. It's not a Ford F-150 and a blue Prius. It is two identical, you know, Honda Civics with only one bumper sticker on each car and only one word on each bumper sticker. Car number one says freedom. Car number two says together. Everybody gets this right. He got this right. Freedom is the Republican car and together is the Democrat car. And to try to make that point I made earlier with the night sky in a more mundane parking lot way, it's like, okay, look, the word freedom over our adult lifetime has been taken to an extreme, which really means freedom from just leave me the heck alone. And the together has been taken to a similar extreme, which is kind of, we're so together that as one candidate said, not me, us, like lose yourself in the collective. Mm-hmm. And you can think about that in the context of COVID, right? The just leave me freedom from freedom from leave me alone or the opposite, which is like the crowd that talks about herd immunity as if we're a herd of cattle, not a huge, <laughs> or not a collection of individuals with a real unique identities each to ourselves, you know? And then this tended to get through better than the, the night sky stuff, which was like, look, I don't think we need freedom from one another. And I don't think we need total togetherness. I think what we really want and need is freedom together, freedom through and with one another, not from one another. And that is the best idea I think America has ever had way back to the founding for all of its imperfection and hypocrisy. This idea represented by that constellation and the motto that went with it, 
that you could be at once your own self and fit into something greater. That was a wonderful American idea. We fell short of it then. We fall short of it now. But this idea that you can stand out and fit in. And in the pyramid world, you either fit in or you are left out. It does feel like the ideas of power with and freedom with and just the withness of it all are really at the essence of what we're aspiring to be. But we just haven't quite figured out how to get there. And I think that kind of hopeful but also open space is a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So, Matthew, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work these days? Oh, yours. Well, I have a I have a website which is Matthew with two T's Barzun B A R Z U N like November. MatthewBarzun.com, where you can learn more about the ideas in the book, the book itself available at all the sorts of places. Um, one might buy books. And and a place to importantly give suggestions because I am learning a lot on this virtual book tour about what where this idea is resonating. And importantly for me and more fun for me, like where it's not quite working or a, a great such I have a file on my computer called Yeah, but <laughs> there's people who are like, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think it works here. And that's really fun for me to kind of wrestle with that and engage with readers about where this might fit. And I think maybe where you ended it, you know, it's like, again, the the biggest, I think, misperception when you start talking about with and with is people often think that means total collectivist or some bad middle school science project where one person does all the work and everyone else free rides. It's like, no, no, no. The constellation is like competition and cooperation. And that is what, and if, if I may, that mindset about power is what has created, and I tell these stories in the book, but the largest commercial organization in the history of the planet, which is Visa, the most reliable network in the history of the world, the internet, the biggest recovery platform in the world, Alcoholics Anonymous, the biggest human knowledge transfer engine the world has ever known, Wikipedia, all these things have in common, as different as they are, a common way of thinking about power, which is not a scarce resource like something you mine, but something you can make with small groups of people together. I love it. Matthew, thank you so much for coming today and for sharing your wisdom and your book. We cannot wait to hear more from you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and get a little bit more with in their lives. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>